Okay, you can go ahead and be finding your place in Genesis. Genesis chapter number 11 is where we'll begin at, or where we'll eventually get to, maybe I should say, but uh, we began a series back a few weeks ago uh, that I've been calling Jesus B.C., or Salvation B.C. I never have settled on which one I'm going to do. I think online I put it as Jesus B.C., but our thought behind this study is looking in the Old Testament and seeing types and figures of Christ and looking at different individuals and how they were uh, saved in the Old Testament. And the reason we're looking at this is a lot of people have the idea that salvation in the Old Testament was different than salvation in the New Testament, as if God saved people one way in the Old Testament and another way in the New Testament. And some people break it down until there's multiple ways that people have been saved down throughout time. But we find in the Bible that man has always been saved by grace through faith. That God provided the means of salvation, offered it to mankind, and he accepted it. And that is what salvation has always been. And so in our study so far, what we've looked at, we saw first of all was Adam. And we saw Adam and Eve, the first sin that took place. They disobeyed God, and people will try to classify sin and say, well, I'm not that bad. I've never killed anyone. Well, Adam and Eve ate a piece of fruit they weren't supposed to. Mm -hmm. So I believe every single one of us have sinned greater than eating a piece of fruit that we weren't supposed to. Yeah. Okay? And so if you try to classify your sin and say, well, I am a good person. I've never done anything that bad. If you have disobeyed God, you have sinned. And we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so that all men are sinners. Just we see that from the very beginning. And so because Adam was a sinner and the wages of sin was death, there needed to be a means of salvation. Adam and Eve tried to clothe their own self. They tried to cover up their sin with fig leaves of their own works, of their own righteousness. And that didn't work. Uh, if you think about it, how... How funny it would look, God coming down and finding Adam and Eve, who had unashamedly ran around naked before that with, with no, no problem whatsoever. And one day he shows up to the garden, and they're running around wearing fig leaves. I mean, that's the first, uh, the first sign that something has went awry, right? And so anyway, they have tried to cover up their own sin. They try to do it by their own works, by their own religion, and God does not accept that because he said the wages of sin is death. Death had to occur, but he accepted a substitute, and an animal died, and they were clothed with the skin of that animal, and it symbolized uh, the death of Christ and being clothed with the righteousness of Christ. It wasn't by any works that they had done. It wasn't by any rituals, any Anything that they had done to atone for it, it wasn't because they had done enough penance or anything like that, but it was simple that God says, you deserve death, but I am offering life if you will accept it. And Adam and Eve accepted the coats of skin onto themselves, and their sins was covered, and their souls were saved. And it was a work that God had done, something that he had offered, and something that they had accepted. 
And we went on from that and we saw with Cain and Abel that Abel accepted God's way. He offered up a blood offering, a sacrifice of an animal. And Cain says, the works of my hands should do it. All the vegetables of my garden, these things that I've cultivated, all of my good deeds, all of my righteousness should appease God. And God says, no, I would rather have righteous, or not righteous, I'd rather have obedience. Right? And so uh, Cain refused to accept God's way of salvation, tried to make his own way, and Abel accepted God's way of salvation. And then Cain was mad at Abel because Abel was right with God and Cain was not. And rather than Cain getting right with God, rather than him accepting God's mean of salvation, he decided to do the first persecution of a Christian, basically, and kill Abel. And we've seen that religion going about to establish its own righteousness down throughout time has always persecuted those who were seeking their righteousness in Christ alone. And so we saw that with Cain and Abel. The next thing that we saw was Noah. And the entire world was wicked. It said that every thought of man was only evil continually. And in that time, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That word grace means unmerited favor. It wasn't that Noah deserved it. It wasn't that he uh, somehow was just that good that God looked down and says, okay, I've got to do something with him. But instead, that as God looked down at all of humanity, uh, he said that, that Noah found grace in his eyes. I believe he searched the hearts of man, and he says, Noah is receptive to me. He is willing to believe upon me out of all of humanity. And so he comes to Noah, and he says, I'm getting ready to flood the earth, destroy all of mankind because of their wickedness. But I'm going to offer you a means of salvation. And I'm going to give you the time. I'm going to give you the abilities. I'm going to give you everything that you need. And you're going to build a boat, and you will escape the judgment that I'm going to bring up on this earth. And so Noah believed God. It wasn't that he built the boat. It wasn't that he preached the word, but it was that he believed God. And then because he believed God, that resulted in the works that he did. And so we see that salvation comes before works and that the works that we do are the, are the results of our belief. And so once again, we see someone who was destined to die and God offered in his mercy a means of salvation. They believed and took God up on his offer. Okay. We come to Abraham, and that's where we were last week, that Abraham was a pagan living over in Ur of the Chaldees. He would have been a moon worshiper with the rest of them. There was no goodness found in him. There was nothing that he could claim of his own. But God revealed himself to Abraham in a way of revealing himself to the world. There had to be a lineage. There had to be a family through which the Messiah would come. And God, in his wisdom and in his uh, sovereignty, chose Abraham, and he revealed himself to Abraham. And he said, Abraham, you've been following these false gods. You've been doing all of this. I am the one true God. I have a plan for your life. I want you to leave this place. Follow me without me laying all the details out ahead of time. But follow me. I'm going to lead you to a place. I'm going to make of you a great nation. And of your family, all the earth is going to be blessed. And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. 
And so the moment that he turned away from his paganism, in belief, turned toward God. And see, that is what repentance is, right? A change of mind. And so God revealed himself to Abraham, and he had a change of mind, and God led him all the way over to the land of Canaan. And what we looked at last week with Abraham was that Abraham is a good picture of the average Christian life. We don't usually think of Abraham being too average, but here's the thing. He is definitely a good picture that it isn't our perfection that causes us to be saved. Because Abraham was up and down and up and down. But throughout all of that time, it seems as if he was going up and down and up, and he was climbing just a little bit as he went. And we see a trajectory of growth going on. There were the ups and downs. There were the successes and the failures. But after each failure, there was a restoration. And it built his faith in God because he realized that what he had wasn't based upon his goodness, wasn't based upon his ability, but it was based upon God's goodness and God's ability. So every time he failed, God would come in with a way of reassuring him that he wasn't cast aside, that he wasn't done away with, that God didn't take back what he had said to him. And so there's this time of uh, God giving this reassurance, this recommitment to Abraham. And Abraham, throughout all of this, we see him growing step by step. And so he would uh, struggle in his faith and go down to Egypt. He would struggle in his faith and he would try to uh, take over God's place and married Hagar and followed a son with her, right? And so back and forth and back and forth. He made mistakes, but he got right. And that's where I see a normal Christian life in this, because none of us are going to walk perfect before God. But if Abraham had to be good enough to deserve salvation, do you think that all the things that we look at in Abraham's life of all the times that he had doubts and fears, the times whenever his trust waned and he fell back to old practices and old ways of doing things, whenever he couldn't see how God was working things out, so he tried to work them out himself and made a bigger mess out of it. Do you think that if it was by his goodness and by uh, his perfection or by his works, he could ever get his way into heaven? There's no way. Abraham did not have a good track record. He didn't start off well. He was a pagan. He was an idol worshiper. And even after he was following God, he was back and forth and back and forth. And he made a lot of big mistakes. But he was still saved, right? He was still a child of God by faith. And we see that in Hebrews. We also see it in Genesis. But that it was by faith that he was saved. It says that he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And so it's not good works equals righteousness. It is belief that equals righteousness. Because what we're believing is we're believing that we aren't able to save ourselves, that we are trusting in what he is doing. And God says, okay, I can do something with that. Okay. And so all the way through all of these things that we've seen so far, Salvation has been by faith, not works or religious rituals, just like we saw in Noah, Adam, and Abel. 
Now, something else I want to get into a little bit here. I told you we'll eventually get to Genesis 11. But as we're looking at people being saved by faith in the Old Testament, it is faith according to the truth of God that was revealed to them then. Okay? Because you see that this idea of salvation and the knowledge of God is increased as you go throughout Scripture, right? This is what we've talked about in the past uh, as being uh, dispensations or dispensationalism. It's that throughout time, God is unveiling or revealing himself in greater and greater amounts to his people. So the amount that Adam would have known about God and about his plan of salvation and what Adam would have believed was quite small, right? What Abraham would have had to believe was quite small, quite incomplete by our standards today, right? But it was that they believed according to what God had revealed to them at that point. Now, it wouldn't be right to hold Abraham or Adam responsible for belief in all the things that the Bible lays out for us today, right? For Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That wouldn't be right, would it? But God revealed himself to them, and they believed according to what he had revealed. The reason I'm stressing this is that we are at an advantage today. We have so much more that has been revealed to us, but we also have so many more proofs and evidences in what we have to believe upon, right? And that is one of the reasons why it is so important that we go out and we share the gospel and that we try to evangelize and tell the lost because we want them to know about what God has done for them. Okay, Another reason why I'm stressing this and why this is important is because this isn't about believing in God or believing in Jesus. Because there are plenty of people who say, I believe in Jesus. They might say, I believe that Jesus was a real man, that he lived a perfect life, that he died, was buried, rose the third day. Okay, well, they believe that. That's good. But is that belief that's going to save? Do they believe in all of what Jesus has been revealed to be? No. Because he did more than just come and live and die and resurrect. Why did he do that? He did that to offer salvation. He did that because he was able to be fully sufficient to save whosoever will. And if the Jesus that we believe in and the things that he has done is not sufficient to forgive our sins and save our souls, then we're believing in an insufficient Jesus. And if the Jesus that we believe in is insufficient, it isn't the Jesus of the Bible. Does that make sense? And so we have to believe according to what God has revealed, according to what God has said. Okay? If we look back at uh, if we look back at Abraham, and God says, "I'm calling you out of your people and of your kindred, and I'm going to lead you in this direction. You're going to go to the land of Canaan." And God starts leading him westward, and Abraham starts going eastward. He's leaving the land of Canaan, or not the land of Canaan. He's leaving the land of the Chaldees, right? He's leaving his family and his kindred, but is he? believing God whenever God says, I'm going to take you to a land, and he says, I'm going to go to my own land. Hopefully my illustration didn't get sloppy and I lost you there. 
what I'm talking about is we have to believe according to what he has revealed to us. And if we believe in a Jesus, but not one that saves us to the uttermost, then that is not a belief that saves, right? And so that's why it's so important, because if you say, I believe in Jesus, in the climate of times that we live in, I have to respond with, which one, right? Because every religion, every denomination, every group has a different Jesus, And that might sound a little bit alarming, but they do because if you look and compare it to what is revealed in Scripture, is that the Jesus they're teaching? If they say, well, I believe in Jesus, but he was just a good example. And so we have to live our lives in such a way to imitate him, and he shows us the way to where we can be good enough, and we can be like God, and we can get to heaven. Well, that's not the Jesus of the Bible because he's not just an example, is he? He's not just showing us the way. He is the way. Right? What about if he's just a Jesus that helps us get into heaven, that he takes care of our major sins, and then we still have to do penance for the others? What if he is enough to get us most of the way, but we may have to go to purgatory and be purged of the rest of the sins that he wasn't sufficient enough to cleanse. Either he is all sufficient or he's not Jesus. Either he can forgive to the uttermost or he's not Jesus. Right? If he doesn't, if he's not able to keep you once he has saved you, if he will wipe your slate clean, but it's up to you to maintain it, he is not sufficient. He is not Jesus, or at least not the one of the Bible. And so whenever I'm saying that they believed God according to what was revealed to them at the time, they were believing him uh, not just according to what was revealed to him, but they were believing him. Um, what's the word I'm looking for here? I don't have it written down. Accurately. They were believing him accurately. It wasn't just sincerity. There's the idea that goes out today. As long as you're sincere, God knows your heart. Yes, and he says that it is desperately wicked, and who can know it, right? But people say as long as you're sincere. No, your belief in Jesus needs to be accurate. It needs to be the Jesus of the Bible because he has put plenty of effort in revealing himself to us. And so one of these days, if you have had the opportunity to have the Bible in your hands, to hear it told to you, the gospel preached to you, and you stand before him and say, well, I didn't understand. I didn't know that Jesus. He says, I told you all about myself. I've showed you. I've demonstrated it. Page after page, chapter after chapter, all through the Old Testament and the New, I have showed you you can't save yourself, that I want you to believe upon me, trust in me to save your soul, and I will do it. And then the whole time you were continuing to believe in yourself, to believe in your religion, to believe in this and believe in that, in anything and everything besides actually believing in me. And he's going to say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you, right? Because he's revealed himself. But Adam and Noah... And Abraham didn't have this. But they had the word of God, and they believed the word of God, and they believed God according to his word, and he counted unto them for righteousness. Now, does that mean that you have to know the entire Bible to be saved? No. But you have to be trusting in him and his word completely. Okay? And so we've been seeing this as we're going through, 
And this is going to be revealed more and more as we get into Moses, we get into the law, and God is revealing more and more aspects about himself. And it's not to make it harder to believe, it's to make it easier to believe. Because he's showing them more and more. He's giving them more and more evidences, right? And he's also showing them more and more how great and how sufficient he is. Think about the children of Israel, and I'm getting ahead of myself. Think about the children of Israel as they watched God supply for their needs over and over and over again. They got to the place, they said, we are going to starve to death, there is no food, and God says, I am the bread of life, right? We're going to die of thirst, there is no water, there is nothing we can do, we cannot source water, and he brings it out of the rock and says, I am a well of water springing up into everlasting life, right? All throughout the Bible, we find mankind coming to the end of their ropes and saying, there is nothing that I can do. And then God saying, I will take care of it if you'll just trust me. It is by grace through faith, not of yourself, right? It is a work of God, not a work of man. And he offers it full and free to whosoever will. And that's how salvation has always been. And so I need to get on forward with this, but I, I'm enjoying seeing this in the Old Testament. I'm enjoying seeing salvation all the way through. These men simply coming to the place where they say, okay, God, I'm taking you at your word. I'm putting my life in your hands. And so as we come to our text tonight, we're going to be looking at Lot. And I believe Lot is another relatable Christian in a little bit different way than what Abraham was. Abraham, we see his ups and downs, we see his flaws and his failures, but for the most part, Abraham is on an upward trend. He is following God, he is seeking after God, he wants to know God, he wants to grow in God, he wants to do what God wants him to do, okay? Sometimes he grapples with it a little bit, trying to figure it out, but he is seeking after God, he is following God the whole time. We come to Lot and we realize this is another man who likewise is a believer. He is saved in the Old Testament sense, okay? And the reason I can say that, we can look in, uh, I'm just going to say these uh, passages for the time being. We can look at them later. But in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 and eight or six through 8, Lot is called righteous and he is called just, okay? Not only that, but in Genesis, where we're going to be at tonight, uh, whenever God is getting ready to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham is pleading on behalf of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and says, God, if there's just 10 righteous men within Sodom, don't destroy the place. And God can't find 10 righteous men, but he can't destroy the city until the righteous are out of there because he will not, he will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. And so he has to get Lot and his family out of the city before he rains fire and brimstone upon it. Even as uh, Lot and his family are tarrying in the city, they are dragging their feet, they're not wanting to leave. The angel says, I can't judge this city until you're out of it. Why? Because Lot belonged to God. He was righteous. But if you look at his life, there is not much of anything that points to it being righteous. And in his life, we can see clearly it isn't works or religious adherence that saves a sinner. Because if it was, Lot wouldn't have been saved. 
Lot is one of the examples that we find in Scripture that many people today, if they were the judge of it, if they were looking at Lot's life, they would determine that Lot was never saved to begin with. They would say that he was not a believer because of the works that he had done. That They would have said there's no way he could have been saved and still continued to live the life that he did. There are people that try to argue and say that uh, if a person is saved, then there is going to be plenty of fruit and plenty of uh, plenty of outward um, evidence. That's what I'm looking for. There'd be plenty of outward evidence to show us that they are truly a believer. But Lot is an example that shows us that it is very possible to be saved and be a carnal believer, to be a carnal Christian, to be saved and never grow, to be saved and like Paul says in, I think it's Romans chapter 3, that, or no, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that it's possible to be saved yet so as by fire. And Lot is a great example of that because he came out of Sodom and Gomorrah just before everything that he knew and everything that he owned was burned up, right? And there will be plenty of Christians on the Day of Judgment that will be like Lot, but they will still be saved. And we see that even back in the Old Testament. And so as we look at Lot here, let's go ahead and read just a little bit. I told you I'd eventually get to it, right? In Genesis chapter number 11, we've got a genealogy. At the end of this genealogy, down in verse number uh, 27, it says, Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, Haran, and Haran begat Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity in Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of the... Ne and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, and the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarah was barren, and she had no child. And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his son's son, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, the his son Abram's wife. And they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. And they came unto Haran and dwelt there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now let's go ahead and skip down to verses 4 and 5 of chapter 12. So Abram departed, as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 70 and 5 years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarah his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to the to go to the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. And so we have in this, God had called Abram to leave his family and his kindred and to go into Canaan. And whenever he goes to go into Canaan, part of his kindred goes with him. His father's there and his nephew's there. And they go a little ways and they stop in Haran. Uh, Abraham's father is named uh, uh, Terah there means delay, and so he's delaying his obedience. He's following his father, and after his father dies, God appears to him again, and he leaves out of Haran, and he goes into Canaan, and Lot is still with him, okay? But what I see from all of this is that apparently Abraham lived in such a way 
that he had a testimony with those who were about him. He wasn't flippant. He wasn't some lunatic. He wasn't some crazy. But instead, whenever he believed God and he uprooted his family and he uprooted his life and he took off, it had an impact on those who were around him. And Lot looked at Abram and says, if Abraham believes it, if God has appeared to him and this is the true God and God has a plan for him, then this is the God that I want to follow as well. And so Lot leaves everything that he has amassed in the home that he has always known and his country and his kindred, and he goes with Abraham. And that is a beautiful picture for us of how our lives affect those around us, how we can be a witness to those who are around us. And so Abraham followed God, and Lot followed Abraham, right? We get up into, uh, I believe it's 1 Corinthians. Paul says for the Corinthians to follow him as he follows Christ. In other words, Paul says, I am following after the Lord. I have became well acquainted with him. I know what he's like. I'm trying to imitate him. And so as I am serving him, allow me to be an example to you. Allow me to be Jesus with flesh on, right? And so that is a beautiful picture there of Abraham is living in such a way he makes an impact on his nephew and his nephew believes because he believed, right? And now as we often see in scripture, in the Old Testament, the believer's conversion is not always necessarily spelled out as clearly as New Testament examples. We can look at the Philippian jailer, right? You know when he got saved. Ethiopian eunuch, you know when he got saved. Thief on the cross, you know when he got saved. Uh, Apostle Paul, you know when he got saved, right? You can go to a time and a place. The Bible spells it out clearly. In the Old Testament, it's not spelled out quite as clearly, right? I believe with Noah... He was saved whenever God says, this is what I'm going to do, and Noah accepted the challenge. God revealed his word, and he believed. Adam, whenever he accepted the skins off of him, right? Abraham, I guess, whenever he packed his bags and left. And so similarly, I guess Lot, whenever he decided to go as well, he says, I am putting my belief in this God that's been revealed to Abraham. There's no place in Scripture that says that God appeared to Lot, right? So this is like secondhand faith. This is what we have today. We are believing because others have believed. And so Lot believed God, and because of that, he uprooted his family. He followed Abraham. And that belief that he has in God, God has showed us, was sufficient for his salvation. And so it tells us that God considered him just. God considered him righteous, not because of his works, but because of his faith. And so I think in this we find a great principle as well, that it is good for us to find someone that we can look to, like Lot looked to Abraham. Find someone who is further along on their journey than what you are, and someone who is uh, displaying good Christian character, someone who is living a godly life, and someone that you can say, I want to be where they are. They are where I'm wanting to go. And we can look at them as examples. They can show us the way. They can help us in our faith and help us to grow. Uh, we find that Paul had a Timothy, 
or Timothy had a Paul, I guess it would be the other way around, right? Lot had an Abraham. And so if we can find someone in our life and say that is a godly individual, they exemplify who Christ is, and we can look at them, we can listen to them, we can learn from them, we can grow from them, and they can encourage us and push us along in our faith. We look at Lot's life, and where he started going in a bad direction here is whenever he and Abraham parted ways, right? And so as we're looking at this, I want to kind of parallel Lot's life with Christianity today. And I hope you can see the picture there, and I don't want to take too much liberty with this, but I think it's, it's definitely there. It is a type, it is a picture. And so in chapter number 13, and I'm not going to read through this for the sake of time, I'm just going to kind of summarize as we go through. But in chapter number 13, we find that Abraham and Lot both have great substance. They have flocks, they have herds, they have servants, and it comes to the place where their herdsmen are striving one with the other. They are fighting with each other because their flocks are so big, and they're both fighting over the, the best pastures, okay? And they're doing this in front of the Canaanites, the lost people around them, and they're representatives of God. And Abraham says, it's not good for us to be fighting with one another. We're brethren. And so he says, if you will pick the right hand, I'll go to the left. If you pick the right or the left, I'll go to the right. And he leaves it up to Lot and says, I, Lot, you decide. Wherever you want to go, I'll take the leftovers. And so Lot, rather than looking at it through a spiritual lens, rather than looking at it as what is going to be best for me and for my family, he looks and he sees the well-watered plains of Jordan. He says, if I live down there, I know the neighborhood's not good. I know the Sodomites are down there next door, and it is a wicked place. But if I go with my family down there, and we have our sheep and our flocks and our herds down there, then they're going to multiply. My wealth is going to increase, and I will have it good down here, right? And so what Lot does is what many Christians imitate today, is we look, excuse me, we look to try to get ahead in this world. How am I going to prosper? How can I pad my pockets? How can I get a leg up in this world? However you want to say it. And then go about it through carnal means, through worldly, uh, worldly measures, and we neglect our spiritual health and we neglect our family's spiritual health. We're not looking at the bigger picture. We're not looking to the things of eternity. And so we begin uh, mimicking the world's ways and getting closer and closer to the world in ignorance, thinking it's not going to affect us. Lot originally says, uh, I'll pitch my tent towards Sodom. I'm not going to live in the city. I'm not going to get too close to it. I'm going to keep a nice, healthy distance from it. I'm just going to go into town to get supplies. I'm just going to go in whenever it comes time to sell things. And the longer he lived nearby, the more comfortable he got with the Sodomites and with the ways of Sodom. And before we know it, he is living in Sodom. He's at the gates of Sodom, which is where business is done. It's where government was at. And so apparently he was basically up taking part in city council in Sodom. And so it was a gradual, it was a slow decline 
for a lot before I ever even knew it. We looked at this a little bit on Sunday with Judas at how it probably wasn't the way that he expected things to go. It wasn't the way that he planned for things to go. But he looked and he says, I can go and I can traffic in the land. I can go about living just like the rest of the people around me. And it's not going to affect me. But because Lot was prioritizing worldly gain and going about things the way that the world typically would, in chapter number 14, we find that there is a battle that takes place between kings. And if Lot hadn't been in Sodom, he wouldn't have gotten kidnapped by the enemy. But because he was living in what we would call today a worldly way, it put him in the place where he... Uh, was in the crosshairs of the enemy. It put him in a place where he could uh, get himself into trouble that would not have happened to him had he had been where he should have been. Okay? And so with that, we find a parallel to us today. For us as Christians, if we try to straddle the fence, if we try to keep one foot in God's house and one foot in Satan's house, right? One foot in the world and one foot uh, in the church, however you want to put it. What ends up happening is it puts us in a crash course with disaster. And so this is what happened with Lot. Him and his family was carried away with all the people of Sodom. And then Abraham, another Christian, a fellow Christian that was serving God and was following God and was close to God, had to come and rescue Lot. This tells us something else about how Christianity is supposed to work, that for us as believers, whenever we see a brother going astray, we don't kick rocks his way and say good riddance. We don't say, well, that's what he deserved. We do like Abraham. We gather up the army and we go after him to try to get them. Because Jesus left the 90 and 9 to go and follow the one lost lamb, right? And so Abraham says, Lot has already got in over his head. He's been carried away by the enemy. He is going to be destroyed if something doesn't happen. So Abraham and the servants from his house go out and battle the kings of the, the plains there and get, Ab or excuse me, get Lot and his family back. He restored them, right? We also see God's hand working in that whole situation because God was giving Abraham the abilities and the information and everything that he needed in order for Abraham to deliver Lot, right? So that's what was going on. Lot ended up, uh, or excuse me, God ended up having pity on backslidden Lot. God's prodigal, right? God had pity on him. He protected him, protected his family, and sent in deliverance for them. And as I said, still happens to this day. Plenty of believers living a lifestyle that gets them in a mess. They get it over their head and they need someone to restore them. The Bible tells us in the New Testament uh, for us not to be puffed up, for us not to be condemning to them because the Bible says, take heed lest we fall, right? Restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, it says. And so then we come to, let's see, we're in chapter 14. We have a lot kind of disappears for a little bit. And he doesn't learn from this as he's getting carried away. 
he still stays in Sodom. And in chapter number 18, Abraham again intercedes for worldly lot. This is whenever uh, the angels come to Abraham, tell him and Sarah that they're going to have Isaac, they're going to have their son. And then they also say, I can't hide from Abraham what I'm getting ready to do. I believe this is Christ in the Old Testament. It was a Christophany. It wasn't just an angel, but Jesus was there in bodily form talking to Abraham. And he says, I can't hide from Abraham what I'm getting ready to do. And he tells him, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of the sinfulness. And Abraham begins to beg on behalf of Lot. And he says, if there's this many righteous there, don't destroy it. And God says, I won't destroy it if there's that many. Gets all the way down to 10. And Abraham stops at 10. He thinks, surely there's 10 righteous people in Sodom, right? And I've often wondered if that's how many people is in Lot's family. Because we know there's Lot and his wife. There's the two daughters that he had at home. So that makes it four. He had uh, sons-in-law. So he had at least two daughters who were married. And then the sons-in-law makes it eight. And then if he had anyone else, it would have been 10. But we find that only four of them actually leave Sodom. Right? But Abraham is pleading on behalf of Lot. Saying, God, I know that Lot has got himself in a mess, but please, for his sake, don't destroy the city. And God promises and says, if I find 10 righteous people there, I won't destroy it. And he goes and he doesn't find 10 righteous. But he can't destroy the city until righteous Lot is delivered from that city. Just as a side note on this, this is one, one more reason why I believe that the rapture takes place before the tribulation. God always takes his people out before he releases judgment. Okay? He's not going to release the judgment of the tribulation on this world as long as the church is still here. Okay? And so Lot and his family are taken out of Sodom and Gomorrah before the fire and brimstone fall down. But due to the amount of time that he has spent there, when he's told to flee the city, he has trouble leaving and even more so the rest of his family. And due to his compromising lifestyle, his friends and his family won't believe him. His testimony with them has lost all of its credibility. And whenever he comes and says, my God, whom I serve, the God of heaven, the one and only God, the true God, is getting ready to come down and judge this place for its wickedness, they laughed at him. He said, you're just as wicked as what we are. You live here, you do, you're no different than the rest of us. You come here preaching that now. All of a sudden, some holy roller, right? And they don't believe him. They mock him, they scoff at him. And even his own sons-in-law that were married to his daughters scoffed and refused to come out. There may have been kids involved. Maybe that was the extra two that got you up to 10, right? There very well may have been grandkids that were left behind and that would let us know why Lot's wife had so much trouble leaving, right? Why she turned around and she got turned into a pillar of salt. But if you look at all of this, Lot was a saved man. It appears that his family were believers as well, but they had gotten so carnal, so worldly, so compromising in their faith. They blended in with the rest of Sodom. The sinfulness, the wickedness no longer bothered them. The things that used to make their stomach turn was just normal everyday things now. And Sodom had become their home and they were comfortable there. 
They didn't want to leave it. And the angels actually had to grab them by the arm and drag them out of the city before they could bring judgment upon it. That is the effect that that lifestyle had had on them. So if you think that Lot's religiosity or his goodness or his good works had any bearing whatsoever on God calling him righteous, I can't find it anywhere. I find not a good work one in all of Lot's life. The angels came to town and he tried to hide them from the perverts on the street. Is that going to save him? No. But they were comfortable in all the wickedness. They didn't want to leave. But then we see how his lifestyle and all of his choices impacted his children. So Lot escapes. His wife gets part of the way out. She's commanded, don't turn back. She turns back. She gets turned into a literal pillar of salt. Why? No clue. It's like, God, why did you decide on salt? You ever thought on that? She could have been turned to a stone statue. She probably would have, if I had to guess. The reason why she got turned into a pillar of salt is because it is not permanent. Right? Could you imagine if God made a statue out of her? They'd still be worshiping the thing. If she was a pillar of salt, few rains, it's gone. It erodes away. Salt also in a high enough concentration, they would salt the land of their enemies whenever they destroyed it, and it would cause it to not grow anything. It would be fruitless and infertile. That's a good picture of her, right? She was fruitless and infertile. And so her heart was still so much back in Sodom, she turned back. Now we look at these other two daughters, the ones that escaped with him. They finally got out to a cave. They looked around and said, our city, all of the people that we knew, all of the friends that we had, our marriage prospects are gone. And so our dad is old. We're not ever going to get married. His name is going to die with us. So we need to have children. And he is the only male around. And so they have been so engrossed in sinfulness and wickedness that even incest with their own father didn't seem like such a bad thing. They had been so accustomed to the ways of the world and the ways of Sodom that even some of the most immoral, some of the grossest things there was, wasn't that big of a deal. And if you look at the world that we live in today, it's becoming more and more wicked and if we aren't careful, we allow the world to start shaping our views rather than the Word of God. We start questioning if the Word of God really means what it says it does. How many religions and denominations and so-called Christians is there today that say that these things in the Bible are antiquated and somehow God changed his mind? The Church of England is now ordaining homosexuals, Right? Many people who claim, and many organizations, I'll say it that way, that claim to represent God, they look at the Bible and say, God didn't really mean that. Why? Because we have been so infiltrated by the world, so affected by the world, that sin no longer bothers us, and we look at it as being acceptable, the norm, the status quo. Now, I'm not saying that we go out and we try to eradicate it or we try to enforce uh, morality on this world. 
That's not our job. Even whenever Jesus came, he didn't come to overthrow the world's ways of doing things. He came to offer salvation to preach the gospel, right? He didn't come to overthrow Rome. He didn't come and confront their paganism and everything else. He came and offered salvation. But here's the big part about it. He didn't allow their sinfulness to corrupt him. We are in this world, but we are not of this world. We are surrounded by filth, but through him we can be washed and we can be cleansed, right? And so just because the world says it's okay, just because everything that you see on television, everything you hear on the news, every book, every tabloid, everything that we're constantly surrounded with has all the filth and the muck of this world, it doesn't mean that we get used to it and say, oh, it's not so bad. It's still sin for which Christ died. It is sin that is going to destroy the people who are committing it. It is sin that they need to be delivered from, and we need to make sure that we're not getting used to it. And so Lot and his daughters became so accustomed to the filth that it no longer repulsed them. Just a, a funny anecdote for this. We were driving this week, and it's slurry season, in case you haven't found that out. And we were driving down the road, and I have no idea where they got this stuff from, but it was putrid. It was nasty. And we were driving down the road, and it started coming into the car. And it was like you could taste it. About maybe you wanted to just vomit. Right? But you know the boys that drive those tractors all the time? They probably don't smell it anymore. You ever think about that? How in the world do you drive those tractors spreading that stuff as bad as it stinks? Just round and round all day in the field? You can get accustomed to filth. You can get used to filth. You can get to where filth no longer bothers you. And Lot and his family got accustomed to filth. And so whenever he got out of that city, his daughter said, hey, the only way that we can produce children, we'll get our dad drunk and sleep with him and become pregnant by our own dad. How warped and how twisted do you have to become to think that is an acceptable solution? Does anyone in their right mind just come up with that as an idea? I mean, how warped do you have to be? But this was logical to them. And they got him drunk. And how all that worked, I don't know. But they got him drunk enough to where he didn't even know what happened. And so his daughters are found with child by him. And they grow up to be two of Israel's greatest enemy nations that spring from that incestuous relationship. It's pretty messed up, isn't it? But Lot was a just man and righteous. Let's turn over to 2 Peter chapter 2. This is where we'll close up. Verse number 6 of 2 Peter chapter 2. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemn them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just lot. By the way, the word translated just there is not meaning only, it's meaning righteous. Delivered just lot, righteous lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. 
The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. So as we see that passage, it refers to Lot plainly as being righteous, as him having a righteous soul. If you look at his life as it's laid out in the word of God, it's pretty hard to find anything that we would call righteousness there. Wouldn't you agree? We can't point to him as a stellar example of morality and character. He compromised over and over and over again. He sold out his entire family for worldly gain. He allowed his whole family to become corrupted. He lost his testimony every step of the way. He fathered children by his own daughters in a drunken state. Now, I don't know of anyone who looks to Lot as a role model, model any more than they would Judas, right? But why does the Bible say that he was righteous and that he was just? Lot believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. It was because of his belief in God, according to what was revealed. It's not because of works of righteousness which we have done, but by his grace, right? And so as we see all of this here, there's nothing in Lot's life that would cause us to look at him and say that he was saved. He's a good example of what I looked at or what I brought out earlier, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 15, whenever it says that every man's works will be tried, see what manner they are. Talking about saved people, their, their works are going to be put through uh, to see if they were for God or for themselves, basically. Instead of if they were wood, hay, or stubble, gold, silver, and precious stones. And in that day, some people's works are all going to be for self. They're going to live their lives like Lot did. They're going to see all of the works that they have done burn up, and they are going to enter into heaven just so as by fire. I believed on you. You saved my soul. I have no works to offer you whatsoever. I have lived for myself. I've lived for this world. I've lived for temporal things. And they are saved. They have no rewards to cast at his feet. They have no treasures that they've laid up in heaven. They're walking away from Sodom, walking away from this world with the ashes of their life behind them. But God has still delivered them because of their faith. And so a Christian can live a sinful and worldly life, but I don't think they can live it successfully. And the reason I say that is, as God's children, there are going to be consequences, right? Sin always comes with consequences. There's always a price to be paid. And there's also going to be chastisement, because he says, if you are without chastisement, then are you bastards and not sons. God doesn't punish someone else's children, but if, he, if you are his child and you are living a destructive life, he is going to go after you in such a way to bring you back to himself. Because the best life that you can live, you know, you got Joel Osteen's book, Your Best Life Now, right? The best life that you can live is a life in God's will according to his word. And that's not... Christianese, that's not some kind of uh, double speak or anything like that. God knows what's best for us. And what he wants for us and what he prescribes for us 
is our best life. The devil lies to us and says, it's fun down in Sodom. Lot says, no, it's not. Because it says that the rest of his life, his just soul was vexed. I don't like the idea of that word vexed. He was troubled. His life was constantly in turmoil. His mind had no rest because of all the wickedness that he had subjected himself to, and he couldn't get away from it. He couldn't get it out of his mind. He couldn't get it out of his heart. And he was vexed by it. See, the devil will promise us all kinds of stuff. He'll say, the pasture is greener over here. It's good eating over here. You can be prosperous. You can be accepted. You can be loved. You can fit in with the world. You can do all of these things over here, not knowing all the consequences, all the heartache, all the trouble that lie ahead on that road. And so, your best life is when lived in God's will according to his word. And so just for one final thought on this, if we had instructions, just like you would on a bottle of pills, or if you would have instructions on a new tool or new item that you're, you take it out and you read the box, you read the instructions, or if you're like me, you take it out and you throw the instructions away and you read, right? If this life had instructions on the label, it would say for best results, use in accordance with the manufacturer's specifications, right? For best results, use in accordance with the manufacturer's specifications. Who is the manufacturer? What is his specifications? You live your life by this book, you'll get the best results. You go down in Sodom, and as the saying goes, play stupid games, you'll get stupid prizes. And that's what Lot found out. And so in Lot's example, we see a Christian, but a worldly Christian. He had the scars to prove it. It wasn't worth it. Abraham is up in Canaan land. He is making his mistakes, he's tripping his way through life, but he is growing and he has seen God working in his life. And at, by the end of his life, he can put his life fully in God's hands, trusting him to the place of even offering Isaac up on the altar. And you have Lot over here in the mess that he was in. There's a choice to be made. We're not going to be perfect either way, but we don't have to go down and live in Sodom. All throughout Abraham's life, all the way to the end of Abraham's life, he was still a sojourner. He was still pitching his tent. He was still testifying to everyone around him, I don't belong here. Lot was pulling up a chair and saying, bring it on, I want to be a part of this. Right? That's the choice that we have to make. And so both of them, according to the Old Testament, would be what we consider Christians. But hopefully through these examples that we see here, it helps us to get a fuller picture of what salvation really is. Right? You look at the world today and you can say, okay, as a Christian, I can do whatever I want to do. You can. Lot did whatever he wanted to do. But don't expect it to work out swimmingly. Paul told the Corinthians, 
Shall we continue in sin that grace should abound? God forbid. Right? We can do all these things. But do you want to reap the harvest that you're planting? Any questions or comments on what we looked at tonight? Okay, let's go to the Lord and pray. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. And we do thank you for this time that we've had in your word. We thank you for these examples that we're seeing in the Old Testament about people that you have, have proclaimed to be righteous, not by their works, but by their faith. And Lord, we just pray that this message has been clear and has been thought-provoking, has been encouraging, Lord. And Lord, that you would use this to give us a fuller grasp, a full of understanding of what it means to be saved. And Lord, help us that we don't make these mistakes that Lot did, that we can take this example for what you've given it to us for. And yes, we can be a Christian and live any old way, but that's not the best way. Lord, help us to follow your word and your will. And Lord, we do love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name I pray. And amen.